0: Welcome to another episode of the More Than the Game podcast. Uh, My name is Dan Walls, and it's a pleasure to bring you these interviews and these chats every now and then. And if this is your first time listening, we hope you enjoy uh, today's podcast, today's interview. If you're returning, thanks again for watching this or listening to this podcast. We really appreciate the support. Well, with me today, I have a very special guest once again. They're all special guests in my eyes. But today we have uh, a man who's a successful sportsman. He hasn't uh, so much played in the NBL or been an administrator or anything like that. But he is an avid, avid basketball fan and uh, he's won a championship or premiership uh, with the St. George Illawarra Laura Dragons in the NRL. He's got a load of great information and insights to provide us with today. And I'm speaking about Jamie Steward. Jamie Steward, welcome to the More Than A Game podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, Very excited. I love the fact that you said championship because uh, being a a huge American sports fan, as you can see, um, yeah, it is a championship to me. It's not a premiership.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, mate, you have got the Boston singlet on and you're a massive Kings fan. Uh, We are breaking the rules slightly. This podcast has been about basketball, but you are passionate about it and that's why I got you on. So, where did that passion originally come from?
1: I played basketball my whole junior, um, I, I loved it, and you know, I sort of had a decision to make around 12, 13, whether I was going to be a, a attempt to be a basketballer or um, play rugby league, and wow. probably my height uh, really, really made that decision for me, but uh, my mum was a, a fantastic basketballer in a state league system for the Wagga Blaze, uh, she won a championship with them, and my stepdad it uh, was a, a very good basketball for the Wagga Heat as well. So, mm. um, the basketball love has um, always been in and around me from, from when I was a young uh, young man, so or young kid from mm. uh, ten. But yeah, the footy side of things was dad. So, um, the, the basketball love really came when I met um, my stepdad. You know, he introduced me to the Boston Celtics, which is obviously yeah. my team, and um, yeah, a guy called Larry Bird, who I just became infatuated with, and mm. um, really. Yeah, you know, just admired uh, all that kind of stuff. So basketball has always been around uh, my family. I loved uh, watching mum play. She was really, really good. So um, yeah, her twin sister they played together. She played for the Capitals. So hey, right. yeah, uh, yeah, Marlene Leonard played for the Capitals. So um, but mum, yeah, like the yeah you know, watching my mum excel like that because my dad was always a, a rough and tumble footballer and stuff but going and watching mom who yeah you know, the no-look pass and yeah. shooting and stuff like that like she um yeah I, I think i carried some of that into my footy but basketball's always been in, in my uh in my blood and uh, i love watching it now but i loved i love playing it as well yes there you go mate basketball's in the
0: blood didn't realize that <laughs> so um you told me just before we started the podcast off air um, if you will, but you got uh, Paul Pierce's autograph tattooed on your backside. How did that yeah.
1: come about? <laughs> um, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a diehard Celtics fan. Uh, for anyone that follows me on social media, um, I got the chance to interview Paul for through the NRL last year. And uh, he came out and did a, a tour with Jonathan Thurston, a Legends tour. And um, they'd surprised me by letting me um, go to interview Paul. And um, what, yeah, I had actually travelled with my best mate over to see his jersey retirement uh, in yeah. Boston. So we saw his number get raised to the banners, and we uh, were both in tears and couldn't believe that we were there for, for that moment because we're big Celtics fans. But uh, I got the chance to meet Paul and uh, got a couple of signatures, obviously. And then yeah, my mate raced up and, and said because uh, we've already got the Boston postcode inside a little clover yeah. as well. And um, yeah, my mate said we should get him to sign our just above our butt. And uh, get it see- and get it tattooed. So uh, we both got it signed and asking Paul Pierce to sign your, your rear end isn't the the most attractive thing, but yeah. uh, he did it. And then I raced off to a, a local tattoo parlor and uh, yeah, got it, got it inked in. So it's so um, it's there forever now. He, he just wrote Paul Pierce thirty four and yeah, um, yeah. It was like those moments. Yeah, you know, I've I've actually signed someone before and and been tattooed. That person's tattooed my signature onto them. So wow. it was pretty cool to still have that fandom, and it's something that I'm glad I haven't lost in, in retirement. Is that whole fandom? Like you speak about the Kings, like going and talking to Andrew Bogart and 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 Casper Ware and all those guys, and yeah, you know, even talking to the owners, you know Paul Smith, and hanging around those guys. That for me is a is a huge deal. I don't think they realize how giddy I am when I talk to those guys. So <laughs> Uh, To get Paul Pierce and his signature, yeah, it was just a little bit of fun and happy. And you proposed on half court in uh, Boston as well, (laughs) I hear. It doesn't stop there, yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah, I got uh, figured out uh, a way. I just scammed him away, really, pretty much. I just kept hounding Boston, uh, the Celtics organization, to try and get a photo, um, Mm -hmm. which is what we're trying to do. And then um, I actually had to propose over here so the ring was insured. So we did it here first. And then when I went to TD Garden, uh, the lady was Australian and she said, oh, we're going to take you down to Senate court so you can oh. propose. So my wife or my fiance at the time had to take the ring off and we had to come up with a plan of how this was going to go down. So we're walking in there and um, I'm getting excited because I'm in TD Gardens the first time. I just can't believe, you know, I'm here and, um, yeah, my wife is is trying to tell me to calm down and how we're we going to do this. And I said, I'll just point to where Larry's number is in the in the rafters, and you turn around, and then I'll get on one knee, and then um, yeah, it happens. So uh, it was yeah, it's it's the best photo because mm. um, Maddie had never watched a basketball game uh, before oh, yeah. we met, and I took it to the Kings when they played at the old uh, Aquatic yeah. Center. Mm. Oh right, and yeah. And once that happened, she she became yeah obsessed with uh, with the Kings and obviously the Celtics. There's no other team in in my house. So yeah. <laughs> there
0: you go. It's great, mate. Yeah, you mentioned the Kings. I've uh, in my role with the NBL, I've seen you there quite a bit and bumped in, into you a few times. And uh, one you've obviously been involved, as you said. But one of the key things that you were involved in was the uh, Celebrity All Star Game. Again, done up and running last season, and I was there for that game on. I sent a call cool watching that, and uh, it was just a great, um, a great game. Great to see so many uh, celebrities and ex-sportsmen uh, and women playing in that game. How did that come about to get that up and running?
1: Um, I'd been pretty interested in doing something for a charity in retirement uh, for a long time, and uh, the opportunity uh, had sort of passed me by a couple of times with the Kings. I'd talked to them a little bit, but probably just never got off the ground. And uh, once I floated the idea to, to Paul and his team, and um, yeah, and Whitey and his team, they sort of loved the idea that uh, a person that they wanted to be associated with uh, wanted to do a charity game. So mm-hmm. uh, I just got you know, a couple of guys who I sort of knew could help pump it up and, and I was going to get there. Nick Davis was, was pretty good in helping me uh, come up with the list. And then obviously, you know, when you get a guy like Anthony Mundine, I pretty mm-hmm. much picked up the phone and said, Chuck, do you want to play in this uh, charity game? And he said, yeah, bro, I'll be there. So... <laughs> Um, it was it was really really well put together it was a lot of work a lot of hard work behind the scenes by the by the King support staff and mm. um, yeah it was it was a great day for the starlight foundation because uh, Paul ended up putting a hundred dollars per point so it was an extra four grand in the kitty right uh, by the time that sort of happened but it was just sort of um, if we look at the American style of doing things, you know, the pre-game entertainment, I thought mm. you know, th- there's an opportunity there once a year to have something special for the fans to come in and watch. You know, They see all the football stars uh, on the sideline, Josh Dugan, Adam Reynolds, uh, Marty Tapao, all these kind of guys. Mm. Troll Mitchell's been there. Yeah. If you can get those guys involved uh, in a charity game and raise some money as well, that was the main thing, raise a lot of money. But... Uh, just go out there and, and uh, yeah, probably realize how easy uh, those the professionals do it and how hard yeah. it is for us. But hopefully it's an ongoing thing. And mm. uh, I know with COVID, it's obviously a little bit harder and we don't know what's going to happen with the NBL. But mm. uh, I just wanted to pin my hat on something there and, and have a relationship with the Kings and try and repay them back for, for them looking after me and my family.
0: Yeah, that's great, mate. And let's hope it does continue because it was a great concept and it was great to see Choc out there and doing his thing. He's an amazing athlete, that's for sure. Um, well, speaking of Chalk, who you also played for the Dragons, you did play for the Dragons. Well, most of your games in the NRL were for the Dragons, and uh, so we'll dive into your career now. Um, but as I, you know, I was a sportsman back in the day as well, and uh, for myself, as a reflect of my time playing basketball, um, I learned a lot of life lessons. You know, life is more than sport, but I learned a lot about life that I've been able to apply to my workplace and, and my uh, my marriage, all that sort of thing from playing sport. One of the key things I learned that I've identified in you as a player and as an athlete is hard work. And uh, you look at a lot of the players in the NRL or the NBL, whatever this case may be, and there's a lot of athletes that you look at and they just don't have to put the hard work in. They're just gifted athletes, like you played against them, your Greg Inglises, your Jared Haynes, all those sort of guys. It seems like it's seamless for them. Not saying they don't put in hard work, but there's players that don't need to. But for me, as I reflected on your career from afar, you are someone who very much applied yourself, I believe, and um, yeah, amazing player, obviously a Dragons fan, so I loved um, watching your play, but for me, yeah, you, you just look like you um, applied yourself and hard work was very important to you, would that be a fair comment to make?
1: Yeah, it's yeah, spot on, and, and you talk about life lessons and, and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I was pretty talented as, as a kid skill-wise uh, within my age group you know, growing up and playing footy in Wagga, uh, mm. but I wasn't big, so I sort of had to work out other ways to get around the field and come up with different uh, kinds of plays. And, um, yeah, there was three or four other guys that should have made it uh, that mm. were more athletically gifted and yeah, probably more skillful than me, but um, I, I just wanted it. I just mm. wanted it bad, and, um, you know, I'd like to say that that, drive and uh motivation and training and um yeah you know, perfecting of your craft lasts through your whole career but it, it didn't for me um yeah once i once i sort of reached that uh pinnacle i guess in 2011 and, and lost wayne's um guidance and and that sort of um hunger i, I wasn't a great trainer um You know, I'd worked hard to get to where I had and I'd still worked hard and worked on my body, but I wasn't a fantastic trainer after I left the Dragons. So my body started to fall apart and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's sort of a, I guess... Yeah, looking back, I'd, I'd worked so hard to get my body into shape so many times year after year and um, I'd probably took that for granted uh, later on in my career and um, now that I'm retired, it's I realise how hard it is to get back into shape and look after mm-hmm. yourself. So, uh, But you're right, there, there's so many uh, lessons. I love the fact that you brought that up um, pretty early in the pod but yeah, the, the sport is, for me, when I first started, I wanted it so bad and that's what drove me uh, to be able to get to that level but... Mm-hmm. Um, there's along the way I lost about a a vision of how to live life and enjoy life and and it became all about sport and Mm. not until I met uh, my wife uh, my second wife Maddie uh, after a pretty tumultuous time through divorce and you know emotional kind of stuff that I realized how much I'd actually missed out on life and Mm. what what actually goes into being a person that can enjoy life and and i understand it's a results-driven business as you would know working in the nbl and and playing sport yourself you judge them whether you win or lose but uh, if you ever lose the side of life that's when you can start the spiral and and i went through all that so um yeah the the life lessons and how hard i'd worked didn't carry through through my whole career that's
0: for sure yeah for sure um yeah you mentioned about I guess, uh, moving into retirement, something I've spoken about in this podcast previously is plays and uh, life beyond sport, life beyond the NBL, NRL, whatever the case may be. I guess for so long of your life, you've got that that purpose and you're driven by you know success and championships. Um, you've got that structure and routine throughout the week. Um, but when you leave and when you retire, um, something I've spoken to Jason Smith about, the former Kings captain, um, the importance of having a sense of purpose and vision outside of, Sport is huge, um, and you see a lot of players go through depression and, and struggle once they've retired. So, what have you put in place to
1: ensure that hasn't been the case for you? Um, well, I went through it while I was playing um, in 2015. I'd had, you know, I'd split up. I was dealing with a, a divorce, know, um, yeah, anxiety, depression, all that kind of stuff. But still putting on a, a brave face um, to go out and play every weekend. That was my Yeah, my outlet was getting out of the house to play. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'd sort of dealt with that. When I retired, um, I was over in England. I was playing over there and debating whether I wanted to spend another year over there and try and get into a club um, and and just continue to play or to to come home. And um, one of my great mates, I've, I've, I've been pretty lucky my whole life. I've had a really tight circle of mates that, have never bullshitted to me and, and always told me how it was. And he said, how's it going over there? And I said, yeah, it's, it's okay. You know, I'm, you know, he said, what are you going to do next year? I said, oh, I don't know. Maybe I should retire. And he just <laughs> said, if you're thinking about it, you just do it. Like there's no, you know, you can't half-ass what you're doing because you're going to get injured. So mm. um, after my last game, I, I didn't hang around. I got on a plane probably about two hours later, came home. Um, and then, you know a week after sort of catching up with my family and and um, my missus, I, I woke up one morning and retired and mm-hmm. just it was like a huge emotion for me because I just started crying i didn 't know what I wanted to do uh, I, you know i 've got a keen interest in media, and I feel like i 'm got a little niche there to be able to do something, being able to cover both sports or all sports uh, mm-hmm. as you may may have seen but yeah. I didn't really know what to do. And and for the first two weeks, three weeks, I sort of just sat around and, um, yeah, became, yeah, not, not depressed because I had Maddie and I had that person to talk to, but my life just seemed like I just needed to slow down and, um, you know, just put some goals down. So I wanted to work in media. So how, how was I going to get into the media was actually getting a job to start off with. And, um, I ended up selling toilets and taps and stuff out at Harvey Norman, uh, Penrith and, my missus got me the job cause she, she works at head office and, yeah. um, it was the best thing I ever did. Like, you know, if I'm being totally honest, did I enjoy it? No, not at all. Because I've known nothing about <laughs> toilets, but, um, in terms of, Getting out and dealing with a lot of that stuff that I dealt with you know, not wanting to talk to people while I was playing um, mm. you know, as soon as I finished training going home because I didn't want to be caught in a conversation that made me feel Uncomfortable or be seen or be bagged and all that kind of stuff So I actually really enjoyed it for the year and as soon as I started getting myself into a rhythm and routine Which is what you crave mm. as an athlete, you know when you retire you crave that routine and once I started working I got into a bit of routine. I started enjoying um, you yeah, know, going to work and then the, the office started coming in for the media roles. So um, it was sort of like a get to get the ball rolling. I needed to go through something that was going to make me uncomfortable and take me out of that comfort zone of what I've been in for 12 years mm. and then get back to, um, you yeah, know, the, the goals that I would set out for myself, which was to be successful in the media. And, you know, I'd like to, be able to tell that person three four years ago when I retired that it's gonna be okay mm. uh, but you just need to work hard on yourself because after I retired it was my body was shot like I mm. would struggle to get out of bed because you know you go from training every day putting up with pain um, yeah getting everything you can to get ready to play when you don't mm. have to play mentally your brain says, this is great. Like I don't have to stress about this. And that's why people say, do you miss playing? And I, I don't because I don't miss not sleeping for 24 hours after I play and yeah. you know, nervous about if I'm in good form, like all this kind of stuff that goes mm-hmm. into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, when you, when you retire, your body just slows down mm-hmm. and you, you're slow thinking. And I, I see life in the game now of life and all that kind of stuff. And when I watch basketball and footy and whatever, I see it so much clearly than I ever saw it when I was playing. And, mm-hmm. uh, it's something that I enjoy and, and something that I feel like I can pass on to younger guys or, or younger people, really, in, in the yeah. profession if they get into professional sport.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic, mate. Just before I dive into your media, um, which I hear, just want to touch on the anxiety, depression, because I yeah. struggle with it myself, and um, there's no doubt because it's so prevalent these days. There's no doubt someone watching or listening now to the podcast who's going through it themselves, and. Um, you know, it is tough. It's full on. And particularly in the season of life we're in, uh, with COVID, it can be so overwhelming. Um, is there any strategies that you've you put in place previously just to, uh, to work through it, to move through it? You mentioned having mates and people around you. It's so important, particularly for men, I think. Um, you yeah. know, men just don't talk about their issues enough, which we need to because um, we're wired for a relationship, I believe, and, and we need that. So was there anything in your life that you put in place to ensure that you, you know, you mentioned routine was one of those things. Any else that you put in place?
1: Um, I, you know, I, I was very lucky that I met Maddie at the time I did mm-hmm. you know, in, in the crossroads of my life, and I remember the first time um, you know she brought her dog over and she uh, she said, "Should we go for a walk?" I, I'd never gone for a walk by myself, really? um, yeah. and yeah, it was a real eye opener to like, oh, you can actually leave your house and put your headphones in and go for a walk, <laughs> and just you know in. in get some fresh air so um that became a a real part of our routine was was walking and you know sometimes when i was looking after the the dog you know when she wasn't there i'd just take for a walk because i felt safe in that area and i think um you know dealing with that kind of stuff is is obviously people are being more aware of it but also you know talking about it for me um became a a real you know I, i seek some help while i was playing and Talk to someone about my issues and, and what had gone on and stuff like that. That became a real um, outlet for me, and you could feel the life start to shift after that. Like it was mm-hmm. like a a chapter closing on on some of that other stuff, but opening a new chapter and opening my mm-hmm. views and you know how I was going to see the rest of my life in a different way. So mm-hmm. um, I remember one time um, dealing with anxiety, and I still do in certain situations because. Social media is is everywhere and, you know, you go out to public settings and um, I like a beer. I like having a punt. Um, I've gambled too much at some stages in my life. I've drank too much at at certain stages in my life. I've got a balance now. But I've been out in situations where I felt really uncomfortable and got into heated, you know, because I felt like they were just trying to make me their their story you know they were trying mm-hmm. to and that's the anxiety and the paranoia that goes with being in the public eye so mm-hmm. um i went to the mall once i went down to get a, a shirt and a pair of jeans um i went and bought a juice first and i heard someone start sort of yelling out at me and start saying something i ended up buying a pair of pajamas and a pair of sunglasses i didn't need any of those two things but they were the most quiet stores uh, around me and i felt like that I had to escape what was going on around me. And mm. um, looking back now, <laughs> it's like it's funny <laughs> that, yeah that had happened. But at the time, I was really, like, shaking. And I'd walked out and spent, you know, a couple hundred dollars in sunnies that I didn't need mm. and just because I wanted to escape what was going on. So yeah. um, dealing with it, I think, you know, it's important to slow down and, and take a breath mm. and realize you can live in that moment and, you know, you can... You can walk away, you can go and get a glass of water, but if you slow everything right down, pretty much like anything in life, if you slow it right down and break it down to that moment and worry about the process and not the result of what's going on, mm. then you're going to be okay. Yeah, 100%. Well
0: said, mate. I think um, just touching on that, um, finally, I one thing I've learned from my experiences is that um, going through it, So we're so wide in society, I guess, to run away from hardship and suffering and um, i learned through my experiences now you need to embrace it you need to embrace the moment as you said and it comes back to your sporting career as well but also another life application point i think that um you know when teams are going bad or are your teams not going that great and you are in the public eye i guess i think you, there's this tendency to just want to run away from it but i think wisdom says embrace it learn from it and you grow in that situation so um, just reflecting on your sporting career and and that concept, has um, that is that something that you feel um, has been helpful in your in your career? Just um, embracing the moment, as you said, and trying to learn and grow from it.
1: I think I have learnt to embrace it in retirement more than what I did as a player. Yeah. Um, you know, when you when you start to work in, in the public eye, everyone's going to have an opinion, and you know, I use that to fuel me at. at a lot of my career because I was an emotional player you know I mm. if I was going well I sort of looked for that article or uh, person that didn't think I was going well and tried to get that to drive me and mm. uh, at, at sometimes in my career that was to my detriment because it, it took my focus away from the job I was actually doing but um, once I got into it once I started to get into the media and retirement I had to make a decision that you know not everyone's going to like you but mm. you know it's a matter of having your opinion. And if you've done the research and you believe in your opinion, then you start to embrace the comments because people are going to be personal. People are going to be racist, all that kind of stuff. Like we're never, ever going to stop that, which is really, really sad. But um, the people that I enjoy talking to that I embrace, you know, this sort of back and forth banter with, I think by the end of it, they actually end up respecting you because um, you can have those conversations and you do embrace it without sort of taking yourself too seriously. And there's times Mm -hmm. where, I'm, you know, not my, my friendliest and I um sort of swat them away pretty pretty harshly. But there's other times where I'm really engaging as well. And that's about embracing, you know, the situation and what's going on. And if you believe what you've said and you stand up for it, then um, you know, there's there's no reason to not embrace it. And I think that's the same as what you're talking about when you're playing, you know, you're gonna have bad games. <laughs> it's just that's life. Yeah. No one has ever played perfect their whole career. People have bad games and people have bad stresses in life. But if you embrace that and work out how you can sort of get around that and uh, come back stronger from that, you're going to be better off for it. Yeah, 100%.
0: That's great, mate. Uh, Just with the media too, the media career, um, one thing I was talking to Matt Russell, the NRL, NBL uh, commentator previously, and uh, we talked about adaptability in journalism and sports reporting. And um, as you've retired, I've very much seen that. Um, you haven't been one-dimensional and pursuing the NRL media, but you have ventured into NBL and, and general sports, you know, beyond on Bill and & Boz and these sort of shows. Um, so what does adaptability mean to you and how important is it to be adaptable, particularly in the season of life we're in? I think, um, you know, companies, governments, they need to adapt to the situation and if we are going to survive and, and move through this thing. So, um, yeah, how important is that in, in your life?
1: Yeah, I love all sports. Um I think it's a real um bow, you yeah, to my a string to my bow, I beg your pardon. Um, mm. to be able to cover and talk about that without um I guess, you know, faking it till you make it in mm. a sort of sense. You know, I can I feel like I've got a, a pretty nice um grasp on things in the NBL that I could actually break down some play and stuff like that and I enjoy that. Mm. Um obviously footy's there, but uh, I sort of relate it back to when I first came to Sydney. I wasn't a goal kicker, and my stepdad uh, Huey, just said, "You know, you, if you get in a situation where there's two halfbacks and he's just as good as you, and you can goal kick, then you're going to be able to get that job." So the adaptability to be able to, to cover many a sport, and you know, that's why I enjoyed uh, Bill and Boz, and that's why I like to think that's why I keep getting invited back to the back page. Is it's mm. an hour of sport, and you've got to know your stuff without sort of, um, you know being so strong in one area that they can't go to you on another. So mm-hmm. I enjoy that whole kind of thing. I enjoy the prep. Uh, it keeps me fresh being able to look at other sports. And if you look at all the best uh, people that cover the game in America on ESPN, Stephen A. Smith, you know, Wilbon, all these kind of guys, they are so adaptable across the, – they've got the major sports, but um, they are so adaptable and, and so, you know, they, they get it. So mm-hmm. a lot of that stuff is, is based off – what I've seen from those guys, what I like, the podcasts I listen to. And you pick up those opinions pretty quickly and you can put your own spin on it without just saying word for word what they said. So I enjoy the adaptability of being able to showcase my skills. I've done some commentary. I've done some play-by-play. You know, I wanted to do some sideline stuff for the NBL. That opportunity hopefully comes one day. Um, it's yeah, I enjoy being able to showcase my talent and my skill because I work really hard at it. Uh, but it also... Um, I understand that it takes time, and you know not everyone wants to see a, an ex NRL player covering the basketball and stuff like <laughs> that. But hopefully, one day, um, you know, we get to a point where we're actually listening to what the person's saying and not worried about who the person actually is. Yeah, for sure, mate.
0: No, I'm would, I would, I would, for one, we'd love to see you on the sidelines. So you can, uh, if you've got my vote. Um, <laughs> I'd be pretty sure standing. <laughs> <against the ropes. laughs> yeah, that's true. If he's back, let's hope he is. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's shift now into. Um, successful organizations because you've been a part of a few and when we talk about the NBL the recent or the current champions the Perth Wildcats um, most successful sport uh, sporting team in Australia arguably because they've made the finals just about every year since their inception so and won so many championships but um, they're going to give it a good hard crack this upcoming season but you've been a part of uh, the Roosters set up you've been a part of the Dragons when they won the premiership and had success there and then Penrith, I guess, when Gus was there as well and Bill Gould trying to build a successful organisation. So what is it about these organisations like your Melbourne Storms, your Perth Wildcats, your Sydney Roosters that they can just have success for so long? Is it a matter of getting the right people on board or is it more to it than just the people in the organisation?
1: Yeah, it's, um, if you look at the three clubs that I played with in the NRL, the Roosters were coming off three grand finals uh, and then they had a huge roster turnover. Brad Fitler retired into two thousand and four. We'd had some successful lower grades. So that transition was starting to, to happen and yeah, the best teams make that happen, but you've also got to have the right people and right players at the right time. So that was a really hard transition for, for the Roosters. And I didn't think they made a I think they finished last in 09 and then made a grand final in 2010. Uh, the Dragons had come off a successful period but just needed a a change at the helm, which is what Wayne happened. And then we became really successful. So Mm. um, that again, wasn't necessarily a player thing. That was more a coach driven thing. So for the Roosters was more like we need to get some different players in to be able to carry on that legacy. The dragons had some good players. They needed a a different voice at the top. And then Penrith was starting out, you know, when I went to Penrith, Gus had signed me for four years and Mm. uh, he just said, there's a vision here to try and get these young guys through. And, you know, I, probably knew in the back of my head that I wasn't going to play at that contract because there was going to be so many young guys coming through. But uh, to be there at the start of that and, you know, you think 2014 we're one play away from a grand final. Mm -hmm. um, That was the start of what is now in 2020, the hottest team in the NRL. So Mm -hmm. successful organizations always, you know, they have people that I I think about the Roosters right now in the NRL, Mm -hmm. Nick Politis, they have board members that do board member stuff. They have the coaches that coach and the players that play. And that is never defined anymore by one, two, and three. There's, that, that never gets blurred. You look at the Brisbane Broncos at the moment who are struggling. Mm. They're just so far distance and separated that you don't know who's doing what and you don't know what their direction is. So mm. I think being clear-cut, having a direction that everyone believes in, allowing the players to play, the coaches mm. coach and the administrator's administrate mm. uh, goes into being a successful organisation. Yeah. Well put, mate. That's, that's so
0: true. And you mentioned the coaches. Um, it's important to have a successful coach. So from successful organizations to successful coaches, you were obviously coached by Wayne Bennett. And you could probably say the MBL equivalent is Brian Gorgian, who's back for this up- upcoming season. A phenomenal coach and a great guy. Um, first of all, what makes a good coach in your opinion? Because you've been under quite a few and when you reflect on those two guys, Brian Gorgian and Wayne Bennett, for both of them, the rap on them is they such great man managers and um, they're great mentors. So they're not just about the X's and O's, um, they have a good rapport with the playing group as well. So, um, so yeah, what, what else makes a great coach at NBL and RL level? I think it goes across all sports.
1: Yeah, I think the longevity. Of the, the great man managers Is probably what stands out to those two guys You know, Brian Gorgian obviously was successful In what he did in winning championships But you need to be able to keep Hitting the refresh button On, on those longevity in, in the teams Like you think about what he did with that Kings team Like mm. they were very talented But you know, how do you keep getting the best out of those guys Which is what mm. Trent Robinson's doing at the Roosters And what Wayne's been able to do Year after year is put he, Get the best out of his guys each week Enough to be able to be successful throughout the season. So I think that, you know, I've been a part of um, my coaches, I think four or five of my coaches throughout my career have all won um, premierships. So it's, there's a lot that goes into it, but it's that longevity of man management, understanding that not everyone's the same, not everyone needs a a cuddle and not everyone needs to kick up the ass. And I think that, you know, Brian coming back into the NBL um, is a huge coup for the NBL and and the Illawarra Hawks. And, Mm. Uh, they're going well, to the need... no longer the Allura hawks. Oh, sorry, just the <laughs> hawks. Um, but yeah, it's. it's uh, I, I think that um, yeah, those those guys tend to get the best out of their players because their players can trust them, and mm. you know that when you're going the trenches, you know I think about many a press conference where I didn't play as great, and a question had come up, and Wayne had come out and deflect it, and yeah, you're all in it together because as a guy that stressed a lot about. Um, that kind of stuff you know there was nothing better than knowing that your coach has got your back so i think that you know the hawks will be looking to get some of the best out of their young guys that have had a tough year last year and gone through some adversity and get someone in there that doesn't waver you know how wherever the season's going they're going to be turning out working hard and um you know they know what they get out of their coach mm, absolutely um
0: just a quick one on Wayne bennett because um, you were part of that 2010 premiership which we'll come to again but um one thing I, I noticed on, um, I think Paul Kemp was talking about last night on uh, NRL 360. I oh, know it was the Matty Johns podcast and he was talking about when you guys went into the sheds at halftime when you were down. Um, and you can verify this is true, um, if you wish. But he was referring to Brian Smith and how Brian Smith in that halftime break was just all over the board, X's and O's. He said confusing the Roosters players. Whereas... Wayne Bennett just walked around as he does quietly and just apparently said to you all he said was when are you guys gonna start playing Watson St. George? Is that yeah. true? Um,
1: yeah, it's true. He, yeah. Um, he just said that's not the dragons out there. I don't know who that team is out there, but uh, when you guys play like the dragons, um, you're gonna be you're gonna be okay and, and all we need to do is win the second half. And mm. yeah, you know, I don't I didn't hear anything but we need to win the second half because I <laughs> it happened that quickly and we were losing, so Yeah. For me, I was like, "No shit, we need to win the second half." So, um, yeah, it was. He just had this calmness about him, and uh, there's a documentary coming out later later this year, I think about the end of September, that shows the calmness and the vision. And, and I'd forgotten about that grand final day, the little bits that go behind, because you you turn up, you prepare, you turn up, you hopefully win and then you party and yeah, those little moments that you in the preparation you probably forget about but Mm. his calmness certainly rubbed off because we'd been in that situation the week before uh down at half time yeah probably not playing our best and need to get back to our to our a plan which is what we called it so Mm. um yeah after a great start we'd gone away from that and you know his calmness and and it'll show in the documentary his calmness reflects Mm. on the group and then we come out and you know people often say yeah what was the turning point? I think that first set after half time it was a completely different side when you look at that first set and how where we turned the ball over um yeah that was that was the dragons that had been dominant all year yeah well, I was as a dragon's fan had been following the dragons for
0: so long. it was such a good feeling and know the to be a part of it but um yeah, so obviously every sportsman's dream is that's what you're aiming for for so the championship, the premiership success and Unfortunately, Kings missed out on that last season, but um, being a part of that win in 2010, um, yeah, that was your only premiership, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 What was that like just to experience that where many other players miss out?
1: Yeah, it was, um, yeah, I'm still very proud of it to this day. I've worked really hard to get into that position and the team had gone through so many um, ups and downs through that little period to get. Back to that position to be able to perform on the big day. So, um, you yeah, know, winning a, a ring and being able to show it off. And, and in retirement, you know, the best part is being able to just share it with Dragons fans who were there or, you know, they can see where they watched the grand final and being able to show them the ring. So um, that's, you know, to me, that's what you play for. You, you know The individual accolades come along with team success and I was, I was a product of that at the Dragons and, you know, lucky enough to be able to convert that into a premiership. I uh, feel like '09 we probably weren't ready as a group, uh, and 2011 I felt like we left one on the table because uh, we'd, we'd had Origin and struggled, and it ended up costing us uh, towards the back end. So, yeah, it was um, i was very lucky to get one. Yeah, hundred percent.
0: Yeah, 2011 season. I remember. Just quickly, I was at the game against the Broncos. That was probably the best game of rugby league I've ever seen in terms of... Went to extra time did it from memory. Golden yeah. Lockheed's <laughs> last, oh, yeah. last game. Oh, 100%. Gazney's last game. Lockheed's last game. It was, it was phenomenal. But um, we had here to ch- chat about basketball, so let's move down that <laughs> path a little bit more. But um, shifting gears a little bit, you are obviously um, proud of your Indigenous heritage and played for the Indigenous All-Star team and also the 2008 team at the World Cup from memory as well. So... I'm very proud of it. Um, the NBL have also done some great things in terms of um, celebrating Indigenous heritage, and Tyson Demos from the Hawks has been a big part of that. Um, yeah, what can the NBL do, I guess, to grow that a bit more, maybe, and and more broadly, you know, we're talking about reconciliation and moving towards, um, yeah, you know, obviously seeing people that every life matter, I guess, particularly Indigenous Australians. So. Um, in your opinion, what can be done to ensure, um, I guess, that young Indigenous Australians are uh, looking up and having goals and, and and looking forward to to life? I guess. So.
1: Yeah. Well, I think um, the first thing is, you know, the way the NRL do it now, we got to you got to start somewhere. You know, twelve years yeah. ago um, when we played in that game, the. We had hardly any gear. We didn't have a real design on the jersey. It was very basic. We played in a a warm-up match really for the World Mm -hmm. Cup. So Mm -hmm. um, it meant a lot to us, but it wasn't sort of the exposure in and around what it is now in the Indigenous round in the NRL. And Mm -hmm. we've got so many fantastic Indigenous players past and present. and You've got so many Polynesians now Mm -hmm. past and present that have paved the way for the product that we see today. So I think the NBL this year there was a large focus on making everyone included. And that's not just Indigenous Australians. That's mm. making everyone feel a part of this round. And mm. uh, Tyson Demos, you know, to give him a rap, the, the way he and how hard he worked on getting that exposure and what he's been able to do for Indigenous awareness um, in, mm. in basketball in Australia has been fantastic. And, mm. you know, looking up to him, um, carry that torch in the in that, sort of um, sector has been a real bright light I think for the nbl and someone they can continue to work with and obviously Paddy Mills, you know, the way he's carried himself in the NBA has I guess opened a lot of eyes, you know, to the Indigenous players in Australia. There's a lot of people that, you know, or I get asked all the time, are you indigenous? And and I am and I'm very proud of it. And you know, you, coffee's coffee, no matter how much milk you put in it. And I think that <laughs> there's a lot of people in Australia that don't know um, the Indigenous players in the NBL. And I think we see mm. that, you know, that how proud that you are. You you know, you don't have – the skin colour doesn't dictate how proud you are to be mm. uh, where you're from. So I thought the NBL did it fantastic this year. I was, I was proud to be there uh, on the Indigenous round for the Sydney Kings and be a part of that and mm. the way they did it and invited Preston Campbell down and, you know, to talk about the jersey and, and all those kinds of things. It's It's got to start somewhere. I think this is yeah. the, the first year that – the NBL, especially the Kings, because you know we're obviously in Sydney, but they'd recognised um, you know the Indigenous heritage and what it means, and, and to do it to start somewhere. And this year, I felt like was the most aware that the NBL had been in, in that situation. Yeah, for sure.
0: And I guess as as I was saying, like you know, Indigenous Australians are so great at sports, so there's a lot to look up to. And for a young Indigenous kid, um, obviously it gives them something to aspire to, but um, it's important to have uh, healthy role models, obviously, um, which you are one. So, yeah, I guess how important is it to be um, a ro- uh, in terms of role models, how important is it to be a healthy role model to them?
1: Yeah, it's it's a tough one because, um, you know, you, you, you say that you're a role model and then mm. you do something wrong and, and the parents blame you for being a role model. Yeah. So <laughs> it's true. Um, I, I think perfect. it's, uh, you know, as, as sports people – we're human as well. Um, so in terms of being a role model, I think that you know, your, your family and your, where you grow up, that's there your role models and how you conduct yourself and behave later on in life is a reflection of how they raised you or mm. um, certain things because you know, If I'm a role model uh, and I live my life a certain way and then that person tries to live like me, then they're not actually living in their own moment. So Mm. we can do all the school visits that we like, um, but it's going to come down to that person making the right decisions as a reflection Mm. uh, and the consequences of how they've been uh, Bought up by their own role models mm, and that's right. you know, sports stars and sports heroes in America are treated like sports stars and sports heroes. They're not treated like role models because they are not role models. They are guys that earn millions and millions of dollars mm. who carry themselves in a certain fashion to keep the show alive, to mm. keep earning millions and millions of dollars. So they're not necessarily role models. So yeah, um, you know, I am a role model to my two daughters. I'm yeah, a role too. model you know, to my family. And I think that if everyone actually narrowed that focus down and did that themselves, they'd be able to not blow up if Jamie Sauer does something wrong Mm -hmm. um, and say that you're a role model. If I come out and say something or I make a mistake or something like that because you're allowing your child or or whatever to be able to um, lose focus and lose sight on what the actual goal is and that's being the best person they can be and trying the hardest that they can and Mm -hmm. having fun and learning lessons along the way. Yeah, that's great,
0: mate. All said, 100% agree with you. Uh, just finally, uh, it's been a great chat. Could chat to you about so much more. But um, you've seen, obviously, the NBL grow over the last few years. And you know we've spoken before in this podcast about Larry Kesselman, the great job he's done with his team and um, has really grown to what it is today. But um, what are you excited for or looking forward to
1: most with the upcoming season? Um, from a Kings, I'm very biased. So from a Kings point of view, I thought that, yeah. Ownership in Australia uh, is new to Australians uh, in terms of you look at America and, and the owners get together and, and they run the league. And I thought, you know, Paul and the way that he conducted himself and was so involved in everything that happened with the Kings last year was a real bright light and, and real eye-opener for everyone in Australia about what one, what it takes to be an owner, but the pressures and also the exposure we can get to ownership. Like this is a guy that doesn't have to spend his money on the Kings can can go out and just live life comfortably and enjoy that. But the way he involves himself with the club and wants to be a part of that so much, I thought that opened up the eyes of Australians to, you know, how passionate he is about the Kings and, and basketball in Australia. And I think going forward that, you know, we need to understand that the better the product is, which it it is, and there's going to be heroes and villains in everything that we do. Mm. Yeah. If we, Embrace those and pick and choose, and make it bigger. Then the NBL is going to continue to get bigger and better players. And you saw what Lamelo Ball did by mm. coming down and playing last year. I thought that he was uh, very good in terms of you know, coming down and, and certainly you know, having some bright lights, uh, bright light moments. Mm. Whether that translates to the NBA or not, I'm not sure because um, yeah, the the NBL is is such a good league at the moment, but it's a different style of league to the NBA. You know, there's a lot of there's not a lot of zone stuff in the NBA. There's a lot of one-on-one stuff. Um, you know, down here, I think you can come and cut your teeth in the NBL, mm. and it's you know, if you're prepared, you can go back and be successful in the NBA. But you know, I look at a guy like Lamelo who needs that bright lights. I'm not sure Elawara <laughs> had the bright lights for him, but um, <laughs> the, certainly the league's growing, the exposure's growing, and um, it really is the, the number one sport. Uh, in the off season of the AFL and and basketball, uh, sorry, in uh, NRL now it, mm. it really dominates that sport. And you can go. Uh, the thing I love about basketball is you can go and watch a game in two hours and get out. Yeah, you know, it's not. Mm. You know, this is it's fast paced. I still think twelve minutes would be better. Um, twelve Agreed. minute quarters. Mm. And you know, obviously we're going to see how how much the talent pool is there with the new team in Tasmania in the next year or two. But um, they, as long as the teams keep getting. Um, the the quality imports, the game's only going to continue to grow. Yeah, 100%, mate.
0: Once again, agree. Well, mate, it's been great chatting with you. I really enjoyed the chat. Um, But uh, we'll leave you to it. And uh, thanks for joining us on the More Than The Game podcast. Thanks, brother. Too easy, mate. Thank you. Take care.